Well, like I said, we're going to be in Psalm 42, but before we do that, I just want to draw a comparison between what we see in our text and just something that we might know a little bit about. Maybe you know a little bit about the stock market. The stock market can be a tricky thing to get involved in, especially when we consider the ups and downs that happen with the economy. Even right now, the last few weeks, there have been uh, difficulties for investors because there's been such a significant downturn in stocks. Now, when it comes to working the stock market for your benefit, if you are a, a professional investor, your goal is to time the stock market correctly. Knowing when to buy and when to sell is everything when it comes to like the game of working the stock market. The goal is to use the downturns in the stock market to your advantage. So those who are great at, invest, at investing, they know how to do this. When the market plunges, successful investors know which stocks to buy so that when the market returns to its, its normal uh, uh, sphere, they, they begin to reap the reward of the growth that took, took place. You know, here's the difference between your average investor and an investor who's successful. When the market turns downward, a, a successful investor is going to utilize that downturn for their advantage. Typically, a crash in the market is an opportunity for investors to think, I just need to survive the crash. Successful investors, however, they look at the crash and they say, how am I going to use this for my advantage? In a similar way, we need to ask ourselves how we are going to use the crashes that take place in our lives for our benefit. How can we thrive in the midst of the downturns that take place in our lives? How can we use those downturns to our advantage? Right? We do not want to just survive the troubled times of life. We want to thrive through those periods. So how can pain and sorrow be used that I might experience growth? How can I utilize the shortcomings of this life for my benefit? Well, when it comes to your relationship with the Lord, this is possible. You can utilize the most difficult seasons of life when everything seems to be in an ash heap and you can utilize those situations to grow in your love and in your affections for the, for the Lord. In times of, of trial and turmoil and pain, it is easy for us to go into survival mode. Right? I want to get through this experience and come out on the other side without shedding too many tears. But our goal cannot merely be survival. We want to grow through these situations. And what we see in this passage of Scripture tonight is that God uses periods of downturn in our lives for our good to draw us to Himself. God makes use of bad markets for your advantage. That's what we see this evening in our passage. 
God uses the difficult times in our lives in order to bring about our good and our growth. So with that, let me begin by reading our passage. We're in Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Begins with this heading, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizur. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, as we come to the very first verse of this psalm, we all want to make a claim like this with, with sincerity. Right? We all want to say, God, I thirst for you like a deer who pants for water. And we want to be able to say that with, with truth, with sincerity. The psalmist here is saying he pants for God. He thirsts for God. He recognizes that his soul has this longing that can be satisfied by one and by only one individual. He understands something. The deepest cravings of his heart are satisfied in God alone. Do you realize that every craving you have can actually serve as a signpost that will point you directly to God. When you crave water, you're experiencing a physical desire. Yet that physical desire actually serves as a metaphor for what is taking place in your soul. St. Augustine, one of the, the forefathers in the church in the, the 4th century, 5th century, he said this in his book, Confessions. This is how he begins the book. It sums up the idea that we see here perfectly. Here's what he says. The thought of you stirs mankind so deeply that he cannot be content until he praises you. 
Because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. You see, the longings of the soul are more powerful than the deer's palate. The soul cannot find contentment or peace or rest apart from Christ. Now, maybe you're familiar with the psalm. We've probably heard it. We've heard it sung in worship songs. And so I want to I ask, what comes to mind when you hear that claim from this psalm? As the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you. Are these words surprising? Do you think they're unrealistic? Those are staggering words. I mean, I just want to ask you, do you feel that strongly towards God? Do you thirst for Him as you thirst for water? It's an important question that you have to ask yourself. But I think here it's tempting to to come to this passage... And suppose that this psalmist is some sort of hopeless romantic. Right? He's lovesick for God. He must be in some sort of season of spiritual harvest. He must be on some sort of emotional high. That's probably what's making him feel these sorts of longings for God. But is that true? Were his words a response to some sort of spiritual high that he's going through? That's actually not the case here. This is not a man calling out to God during a season of ease. This is not a man who has been handed everything to him in life, and because of that, he has this idea that he can praise God. This is a man who is calling out to God in the midst of deep sorrow. He's calling out to God in hurt. He's calling out to God in pain. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This is a lament. When you read through the Psalms, this is what we call a lament. It's a psalm of sorrow. This is a man going through a season of darkness and he's communicating to God with clear, clear decisiveness about what he is experiencing. This is not some hopeless romantic who's infatuated with God. This is a man who's wrestling with the struggles of life. This is a man who is placing all of his hope in God regardless of the fact that he is facing deep and severe depression. His tears serve as his food because he is so overwhelmed with sorrow. His soul is in so much turmoil that the flood of tears will not cease. I think at times we find ourselves in the same sort of seasons. Some of us face severe depression and hopelessness. At times it is as though we cannot plug up our tears... Psalm 6.6 speaks to the same reality. Here David is writing, and here's what he says. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Have you ever felt this sort of pain? Unable to eat. 
not because your stomach is filled with food, but because it is filled with sorrow. I think if you have felt this before, you're probably wondering, how can this psalmist claim to feel this sort of hurt and pain and sorrow, and yet at the same time be filled with this longing for God? How can this this individual experience those two mindsets simultaneously? God, you are what I thirst for. My tears have been my food both day and night. How does that correlate? How does that work together? Maybe you're wondering tonight how those two things work together because you are looking for hope in the midst of your own sorrow. Maybe you, you resonate with the idea, my tears have been my food both day and night. And you're wondering, how can I call out to God and say, I thirst for you? Well, let's pursue that. Let's try to sort out from our passage tonight how we can feel these two sensations simultaneously. Let's figure out how we can, in the midst of our sorrow, utilize that sorrow for the sake of joy, joy in God. Let's begin by looking at verse 4. Here we begin to get some insight into how the psalmist was able to pursue God in the midst of his sorrow. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Here's what's going on here. He is looking back at the way things used to be. He used to lead the procession up to the temple in Jerusalem. He marched up Mount Zion, leading a people in singing. What would take place is that in many of the festivals in Israel, there would be a festival in the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of the surrounding tribes, they would would go on these ventures to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the festival. And what this guy is saying is as he would lead a group of, 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 of people up the mountain, up to the city of Jerusalem, he would be leading them in songs of praise. But that's no longer the case. He's not able to enter the house of God anymore. He's not able to enter into Jerusalem anymore. Why not? Most likely, he's in exile right now. As we begin to work through chapter 42 and chapter 43 of the book of Psalms, like I said, they work together. We begin to see this. He's not in his homeland anymore. He's been removed by an enemy. But notice... Even though he's been removed from his homeland, even though he's in this distant land away from his own people, he's not focused on returning to his home. That does seem odd. Instead, he is concerned with the fact that he is unable to enter the house of God. His concern is that he is separated from the Lord, not that he's separated from his his home or his house. Think about this for a moment. His exile from his homeland prompted him to long for God. I think many of the psalm writers realize something significant. Many of the psalm writers say very similar things. They notice that the sadness we experience in this world 
can actually point our attention to God. The psalmists, they perceived that the pain of this world is real, but will not be ultimately soothed by the things of this world. So follow me here. This is important for us to recognize. When we experience sadness, we often assume that the solution to our sadness is something tangible. Right? You would think that this psalmist would think the solution to his problem is returning home. You would think that his melancholy would be solved by getting out of exile and getting back home. Right? That would be a tangible solution to his problem. But that is not what the psalmist sets his hope in. He is not focusing on the desire of getting back to his house or to his kitchen. His longing is to be back in the presence of God. He longs for God with the deepest cravings, even while he's laying face first in a puddle of tears. And as he looks at his situation, he says, being in God's presence will fix my sorrow. We see something similar in Psalm 63. Here, David is writing while he's in the wilderness, fleeing from his enemies. And he says this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's in the wilderness. He has no water. He's in a dry and weary land. He's being pursued by his enemies. But he recognizes, even though he lacks food, even though he lacks water, this situation is leading him to realize his dire need for God. It's as though the hunger pains and the parched lips help him to remember the fact that that God is his true food and his true drink. This is what we see. Psalm 42, the psalmist's separation from his home leads him to desire to be in his true home, the presence of God. Psalm 63, we see David's hunger and thirst remind him that God is his only sustenance. God is the one who satisfies his soul like water satisfies parched lips. Every experience of sorrow says something profound about the human heart. The sorrow that we experience in this world is a reminder that this world is broken and that it's incapable of satisfying our deepest longings. Every moment of sorrow that we experience serves as a signpost, reminding us that this world is incapable of offering the joy and the satisfaction and the hope that we all long for. And if you look to the world, if you look to this world to, to offer the solution to your sorrow, then you will be left with want and you will be left with sadness. In a sense, God is utilizing, God wants to utilize the downturns in the market of your life for your advantage. When you are sorrowful, he intends to teach you about your need for him. When you lack water, he's teaching you that what you truly thirst for is God himself. 
The psalmist here understands this. Look at verse 5. He recognizes that he needs to turn his attention to God while he's in the midst of sorrow. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The the soul spoken of here is, is melting away into despair. That's what it means for him to say, my soul is cast down. It's as though he's, he's feeling his soul literally melt under the pressure cooker of life. His soul is turbulent within him. It's restless. And so what does he do? He doesn't hope for his outward situation to be fixed. Instead, he says, God, I need you. He commands his soul. He speaks to himself and he tells himself, Hope in God. Hope in the only one capable of offering the rest that your troubled soul needs. You know, I have a friend right now who's a a pastor in Brazil. And one time when I got to hear this guy preach, his name's Alex. When I heard Alex preach, he said something I'll never forget. He was speaking about the fact that we have to constantly preach to ourselves because we're so quick to believe the lies that we conjure up in our own minds. And Alex pointed out, you know, James tells us that we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen when we're interacting with other people. When it comes to interpersonal conflict, slow to speak, quick to listen. And then Alex said that this is not the case when we are speaking to ourselves. When it comes to yourself, you need to be quick to speak and slow to listen. You must silence the lies that are ringing in your head and you must do so with swift swift decisiveness. You need to command your soul to hope in God because you and I both know our souls are so quick to hope in the things of this world. You know, you have the duty and the responsibility to counsel your own heart. You have the responsibility to correct the false ideas that enter into your mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When you find yourself in the depths of depression, you need to correct the false ideas that you are believing with the truths of the gospel. You probably know this if you've experienced the depths of depression that when that is taking place, you are battling through a war in your mind. It's as though there are these lies wreaking havoc on your soul. But like the psalmist, you need to speak truth to that situation. You need to be quick to correct your heart. You need to to find yourself in the troughs of the battle and speak truth directly to your soul. When you begin to think that the solution to your sorrow is something external, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job or a grade or a degree, you need to begin to correct those thoughts immediately. 
You need to correct those thoughts with the truth of truth of the gospel. Your hope must be placed in our steadfast God, not in the things of this world. So with that said, let's keep reading because one thing I appreciate about this psalm is that he keeps going back and forth between the feelings of sorrow and what he knows to be true. There's a, a, a transition that keeps going back and forth from lament to hope. So after describing the fact that he needs to hope in God, he goes right back into the trenches and begins to explain the hurt and the pain that he is in the midst of. Verses 6 and 7. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of, the, of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Notice what's going on here. He recognizes that even as he commands his soul to hope in God, he cannot expect that his tears are going to subside in a moment. That's not the way life works. Life is a struggle. There's a back and forth. Even though he's commanding his soul to hope in God, he is still in the midst of this trial. He's still in this struggle. Verse 6 continues to re-emphasize the fact that his soul is cast down. It's melting away within him. And while he is offering solutions to his dejected soul, he continues to feel the brunt weight of this depression. Even as he calls out to God, he still feels this sorrow. In fact, here in verse 7, the emotional weight of what he is saying only heightens. It's as though his soul is cast out at sea and the weight of the entire ocean is crushing his inward being. His soul has been pinned against the ocean floor. And notice the language here. This psalm gets even more shocking the more we look at the details. Notice what he says. Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Even in the midst of his trial, even in the midst of his sorrow, even in the midst of his depression, he recognizes God's sovereign hand at work. God is even sovereign in the midst of his turmoil. We have to recognize that God sometimes, for his own purposes, intends to leave us in our emotional pain. Since he is the ruler of the earth, he is in control. And like Job, we need to acknowledge the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And that may surprise you. Get it. This is not a simple truth just to accept with, with glee, right? Or, or joy. This is not an easy pill to swallow. But consider the opposite. Let me point out that there is much more comfort in recognizing that God is in control of all situations than there is in the idea that He has no control when things go haywire. Think for a moment how terrifying it would be if God were not in control in the midst of your darkest seasons of life. That's what the atheist says. 
I would rather not believe in a God who is in control, even in the midst of my suffering. And instead, they choose chaos with no purpose, no meaning, no goal in all of this. It's just chance. It's just poor luck. And there's no actual hope that it is ever going to end. There's no hope that it's going anywhere. There's no hope that it means anything. But our God brings purpose to our suffering. He brings meaning to our pain. He brings a goal to the hurt that we feel in the depth of our soul. So what's the purpose? What's the aim? Why does he allow the weight of his waves to crash upon the human soul? Well, first off, I do want to point out that there is mystery in all of this. But that does not mean that the scriptures do not shed insight. We do have some insight here. The Bible does shed light on how God uses horrible situations, how he uses a horrible market in order to bring about a great return for our lives. Here's a couple of examples. First, through our sorrow and pain, we are reminded of our neediness. If the only experience we had in life was that of perfection, that of everything always going our way, that of everything always to be seeming or seeming to be in our control, then we would not understand our true neediness as human beings. We are contingent upon God. God is the only necessary being in the universe. You and I, we are not necessary. This world will keep spinning the moment we leave. We are a needy people and we need a sovereign God. And our suffering reminds us of that. Second, our suffering reminds us of our brokenness and sin. Think for a moment. So often we bring suffering upon ourselves. It's not as though every experience of suffering is that of a passive experience. At times we bring that suffering on ourselves. Either through sin or through bad decisions. We're not morally neutral. And often we bring suffering on ourselves. And when we do that, we are reminded of our sin and our brokenness. Third, through tears, through pain, we learn about the reality that this world is broken and corrupted by sin. Every time we feel pain, we are reminded of the fall that took place in Genesis 3. Every time we feel sorrow, we are reminded that this world is not as it was created to be. And what happens in that moment is we are reminded that there is a restoration of all things coming. So that sorrow and that pain is actually a, a, an opportunity to remember the fact that God is going to reverse the brokenness of this world. At the end of the day... It is essential that we come to grips with the reality that God is good even in the midst of our trials and our pain. We have to come to see God's good 
good plan at work even when life doesn't seem to be good. That's exactly what the psalmist does in verse 8. Verse 8. By day the Lord the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Even in the midst of his hurt, even in the midst of his pain, he recognizes that the Lord is still sending forth his steadfast love. Even though he feels this deep pain, he continues to look towards God. And at night he calls on the Lord with songs of praise. Yet again, the author here is speaking truth to his soul in the midst of this hardship. He is still praying, he is still worshiping. You know, there's a temptation to look to God in the high moments of our lives only to turn a bitter shoulder to Him whenever things become difficult. But here we can learn from the Scriptures that God is good even when things seem horrible. See that here in Psalm 42. We also see it in the life of Joseph. Genesis 50 verse 20 speaks to this reality here in verse 20 we have the words of Joseph let me remind you Joseph lived an extraordinarily difficult life his brothers sold him to Egypt as a slave and then after finding himself in Egypt as a slave he was wrongfully imprisoned for a significant portion of his life and then towards the end of his life he and his brothers are reunited and here's what he says to his brothers, the ones who sold him into, this, into slavery in the first place. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph saw that God utilized his situation for his own good purposes. But it was not until the end of his life that he came to understand that God was using all of these horrible circumstances to accomplish his plan. At times, you do not know why it is that you are in the midst of the ocean being crushed by God's waves of the sea. To be honest, you may not get the luxury that that God gave to Joseph. You may never realize why it is that you are going through those difficult seasons until you have passed from this life into the next. But we still have to trust that God is using all things in order to accomplish his plan. We, we, we serve a God who does not waste our suffering. He uses it. And the psalmist here recognizes this. He recognizes that even in the midst of his pain, God is good. And God is utilizing that pain to bring about his own purposes. Now I want to point out yet again that we see an ebb and a flow in this passage. Right after recognizing the goodness of God, we're right back into the midst of the psalmist's turmoil. We see him wrestling again. He he brings this question for God that I think is is profound when we really think about it. Verses 9 and 10. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? 
here the severity of this lament comes to its head. He's left asking, why have I been delivered to my enemy? God, why have you forgotten me? Does that prayer make you feel uncomfortable? Is that okay? Can we bring questions like this to God? Does God allow these types of questions? Can we come with with sincerity and say, God, why in the world am I in the midst of this? Why have you abandoned me to my enemies? I think these sorts of questions, they cause us to feel uncomfortable. But let me point out that God invites these types of questions. God is big enough for your questions. He is willing to receive your honest inquiries. When we look at the injustice surrounding us, it's okay to ask God, why are these things happening? When we look at the millions of babies aborted from the womb, it's okay to ask God, why? When we see divorce and death and sorrow and sickness, it's okay to turn to God and say, why? What is happening here? What are you doing? God is open to hear your questions. He is willing to hear you wrestle with the situations that are before you. As I say this, I want to point out that there is a difference between bringing questions to God and hurling accusations at God. There's a difference here. Here in the psalm, we have a great example of how we should bring our questions before God. Look at the beginning of verse 9. I say to God, my rock. Even as he comes to God with these questions, even as he comes to God asking, why in the world have you abandoned me to my enemy? He comes with an attitude of humility. He's not coming to God with bitter accusations. He's recognizing God is his hope. God is his rock even in the midst of this turmoil. That's key here. At the end of the day, the psalmist points to the reality that his hope is found in God, his rock. And this leads to the conclusion of the psalm. We have hope in God, even in our struggle. We can come to God with hope. Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my rock. The psalm concludes, not with accusations directed at God, but with imperatives directed towards his own soul. Why are you cast down? He's looking at himself. He's not only bringing questions to God, he's bringing questions to himself. This is the statement that repeats throughout the psalm. As he struggles through the ebbs and the flows of sorrow, he keeps coming back to this reality. His hope has to be set in God. The end of the psalm comes not not with the psalmist bringing 
bringing accusations in God. Not with him coming to God and, and, and finding fault in God, but he comes reminding his own heart of what his response ought to be as he comes into contact with sorrow. He's correcting his gut, which says that he ought to be hurling insults and accusations at God. He's commanding his heart in that moment. Now notice what he says here. Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my rock. Here, or, and my God. Here's why we can hope in God. The reason is because he is our salvation. God has proven himself faithful as our Savior. He saved us through the means, let me point out, of his own suffering. He saved us through the means of his own pain and his own sorrow. This is significant. God has saved us from our eternal sorrow by facing our sorrow for us. God does not leave us in our grief and in our pain. He rescues us through his own grief and his own pain. God used Christ's suffering for our good. God utilized the most unjust suffering in history in order to create the greatest, according to accomplish the greatest act of salvation history has ever known. And for that reason, God can be trusted. He has proven his faithfulness. He has proven his commitment to our good throughout history. And he has done this by suffering in our place. And so we can place our hope in God when the ocean's weight pounds us against its floor. Because he is worthy of our trust. He is capable of using our pain for our good. If he used the suffering of Christ to accomplish salvation for the world, he can use our suffering in order to bring goodness to our souls. Let's pray. God, you are a God who delivers. You are a God who rescues. You offer salvation even to hurt crumbling, wandering souls. Even in the midst of our sorrow, we can turn to you and find refuge, find hope, find joy. Help us to do so. Help us to to behave like the psalmist here who, who comes to you in his sorrow, not pretending it doesn't exist, but finding hope in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.